0: from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. Yes, that's right. It's Monday. It's 11.59. Okay, we're a little out of schedule. But this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, and we have a really great show today. I have a, an author in named uh, Ken Ilgunas. Did I say that right, Ken? That's perfect. Um, and he has a new book called Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic, Never Done Before and Sort of Illegal Hike Across the Heartland. Um, so he'll be talking about that in just a minute. But before we get to that, we must discuss this week's joys and sorrows, my friends. So, um, well, I wasn't quite sure where to file Trump's accession to the nomination of the Republican Party. As, was that a joy? Or was that a sorrow i'm not sure i'm I'm kind of thinking it was a joy just because I hated Ted Cruz so much um and also because I think that he will not be elected but Knocking on wood on that one. So that, that was my, my political, one of my political joys this week. Um, the other piece of incredible personal joy was that I finally achieved a lifelong, well, I won't say lifelong, but months-long dream of acquiring a chainsaw. Yes, I am now in possession of a battery-operated 10-pound, 16-inch blade chainsaw. But the tragedy, the sorrow, I'm terrified of it. <laughs> scared to death of the freaking thing um there's a lot of mojo behind that chainsaw and um let us say that i am i'm still being closely supervised during my um my efforts with it okay another joy this morning mercury crossed the sun did anybody see that My guests in studio did not see Mercury Crossing the Sun, nor did I. In fact, I didn't know until I opened the New York Times this morning at about eight o'clock that it had happened. But so there you go. Uh, My sorrow, another political sorrow, is uh, that Sarah Palin has declared that she would be an impediment to the Trump campaign. So she probably doesn't want to be his nomination for vice president. I just think that's tragic. I really relished the idea of Sarah Palin back on the campaign trail. I mean, the, the, the comedy fodder from her last foray into uh, the public eye was just so brilliant that it's just kind of really, truly a sorrow that she's not going to do it again, but whatever. Uh, another joy is that uh, the art, the, uh, you know, the Antichrist himself is supporting Trump. That would be Dick Cheney. Maybe he could be the nomination for vice president. What do you think? <laughs> That would really be good, um, and then uh, lastly, as a joy, uh, let's see. Yes, oh, I have two more joys. But here, was here one of my biggest joys was that there's now kosher edibles. Pot is going kosher. There's actually, uh, you know, a whole slew of rabbis who are willing to invest time and energy into identifying what is uh, a possibility of being of kosherizing pot. Um, And they did go through a very extensive process at this one medicinal pot plant uh, to make sure that it was all status quo. Who knew that insects were not kosher? Did you know that? I did not, no. Okay, no insects. That's part of the kosher thing. Cannot have any insects on it. Incredible. Um, Here's a sorrow, and this is not funny, um, but something worth uh, taking note of. House Republicans have once again distinguished themselves by passing a wholly unacceptable version of the recently introduced Improving Child Nutrition and Education Act of 2016. In this version, a host of new paperwork requirements will be instigated, undoubtedly gumming up the works for administrators in school districts and resulting in many children either falling through the cracks or simply not stacking up on paper as eligible for free breakfasts and lunches throughout the school year. And in addition, the Republicans seem to think that food is free, and thus during the summer months they are inadequately funding summer meals for food insecure kids even though it has been demonstrated that summer is a time when many children do go hungry there is more about this (laughs) very unfortunate new bill which i firmly hope will be uh squashed or vetoed by our president um but it's really too dispiriting to write about anyway what kind of country do we have where we let children go hungry i just don't get it i just don't i don't know how you can Literally, I don't know how these people can go to bed at night. I don't know how they can look their constituencies in the eye. I just don't understand. Like, how is it okay for kids to be hungry in the richest country in the world? It just doesn't make sense. The Chinese would never do that to their population. And lastly, here's my joy. Um, There's a wonderful writer who actually I'm going to invite onto the show because I just love her column. Uh, She writes for Forbes. Her name is Nancy Fink Hoonergarth. Um, And she writes about food and policy, and she is literally a joy to read. She is sharp as a tack. She pulls no punches. Um, We we need many, many more of her ilk. Um, And what made me want to sing her praises this morning um, is that she had a column uh, yesterday in Forbes.com that points out the way that big ag bullies and lobbies, with the most egregious example of this being the, um, I hope some of you saw this, being the instant firing of uh, Career cartoonist named Rick Friday from the Farm News, because he had the nerve to make a joke about how much money Monsanto et al are making compared to the far- farming community. The speed with which Mr. Friday was dispatched speaks volumes about the control over the press exerted by corporations. I mean, it was just incredible. It was literally the thing. The cartoon was published, and the next day, the man was given his walking papers, and his editor was reprimanded. The you know the company in question, whether it was Monsanto, whoever was supporting the Farm News, with you know threatened to withdraw their support, their financial support. And that was the end of Mr.
2: Friday. So,
1: anyway, do you, Ken, have any joys or sorrows you'd like to
2: share with us? Um, just the selfish sort. I got uh, this is a sorrow. I got robbed in in Houston on my book tour. No yeah. way! Someone uh, crashed into my driver's side rear window and stole my laptop bag. But I suppose it's a joy because I had nothing in the laptop bag except for a, a copy of my book and a copy of my speech and like a thumb drive. So oh, good. Yeah. So no laptop. So no laptop in there. Yeah. Houston, Texas. I'm Houston. sorry. Texas. <laughs> okay. Definitely on my fecal roster. Not my favorite w- wasn't place. Wasn't my favorite city. I um,
1: can imagine. Yeah. Well, um, Jack, why don't we take our quick little sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back with Kenny Algunis. We're going to be talking about his fantastic new book, I Can't Say Enough About It, in Praise, Trespassing Across America. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back.
0: She's her own, she's her own female. She's her own female, that's why I like her. I like her a lot. And she don't know that she's her own female.
2: She's her own female, and she don't know that's why I like her a lot.
0: I got a cab to the cafe to play the charming young man.
1: The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the heritageradionetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and um, today we're not going to talk so much about food as we are going to talk about walking, um, walking across the heartland. My guest is Kenil Gunas. Uh He is the author, as I said before, of Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic, Never Done Before and Sort of Illegal Hike Across the Heartland. Um, this book just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's a Random House title. What's the um, Blue... Blue, blue... What do we... Blue Rider Press, so it's a little imprint of Random House. Yeah, Blue Rider Press. Um, Ken, just to give a little, a few um, moments of his um, of his extraordinary career.
2: <laughs> you can call it that. I,
1: I, I'm calling it that. You're a jack of all trades. You're like you're like my my hero. You're exactly the kind of person I am, um, except that I don't do the things that you do. Um, he has worked as an elementary school tutor, an Alaskan tour guide, a backcountry ranger at the gates of the Arctic National Park. And this is my favorite part of his bio. He has hitchhiked 10,000 miles across North America. He has paddled 1,000 miles across Ontario in a birch bark canoe. Did you make it? Oh, yeah. Did you build it?
2: Uh, No, no, we didn't make it. Some guy in Quebec made it.
1: Uh, Ken has a B.A. from SUNY Buffalo in History and English and an M.A. in Liberal Studies. We'll have to ask what that is later on Uh, from Duke University. He is the author of the travel memoir Walden on Wheels, and he currently lives in Benedict, Nebraska. And now he can add this statistic to his um, incredible roster there, and that is that he has walked 1,700 miles consecutively in like... One long three and a half four month swoop, right?
2: That, that's right, four and a half months. And I should clarify that there was seventeen miles within those seventeen hundred that I did not walk when I was uh, detained and shipped out of Boone County, Nebraska. But we can talk about that. Oh later. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was
1: <laughs> that was really odd. I mean, I, part of the most interesting part of this book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, very engaging writing. I mean, you have a wonderful voice. Um, it 's funny uh it's it's got a you know a fair amount of sort of mm, i don 't want to say philosophical but you know meditative. I really appreciated that part of it um, but anyway why don 't you give us an idea of why you decided to go on a seventeen hundred mile walk i mean what was the impetus for yeah. <laughs> for that uh, particular piece of craziness?
2: So I got the idea when I was living up in this place called Dead Horse, Alaska, possibly the most miserable place on earth. It's a uh, up in northern Alaska in the Prudhoe Bay oil fields right next to the Arctic Ocean. and I was working for the oil industry as a dishwasher. and I just kind of saw the industrial squalor around me, just a lot of miserable men around me, and just kind of what it was doing to the environment. So at this time, back in two thousand and eleven, the Keystone XL was in the news all the time. yeah back then, a whole bunch of protesters going to jail. Um, so when I heard about it, um, the cook next to me says, you want to hike the Keystone XL? And, you know, I was in that in a kind of a situation where you're just really susceptible to inspiration, susceptible to a grand idea to get out of there. So I dropped my um, potato bowl in the sink and said, we must.
1: <laughs> I love that. I think it's really great. Um, so now you started right right now, I mean, as I mentioned earlier before the show started, that, you know, you, you couldn't have, um, your timing for the, publication of this book couldn't have been better since it coincides with an entire city being engulfed in flames and that would be fort mcmurray so you started your walk in fort mcmurray which is sort of the head of the keystone pipeline what you went up in a helicopter like tell us a little bit about what you see when you're in a town like fort mcmurray which um according to their recent news they would evacuate about eighty-eight thousand people Something i think the entire like town yeah. has been evacuated and many, many blocks of the town have been burnt to the ground. Um, so while I rejoice in your good fortune in terms of the timeliness, it's certainly it's a, it's a great sorrow that these people have been displaced. But tell us about Fort McMurray. What is that town like? Is it like a boom town? It, did it just grow up? It just happened? Or has it? was it there all along? And then they discovered this, the ability to uh, extract oil from tar sands.
2: Yeah. So there's something in the ground called bitumen, which is a mixture of clay sand oil and water and the oil industry of course just wants the oil yeah and this is beneath the boreal forest in northern alberta and before i started my hike i really wanted to see this region because this is the oil that would have been pumped down the keystone xl Mm -hmm. so i get a tour flight and fly over the area because you can't see it from ground level you have to be above to see it And this is all boreal forest, spruce trees, birch trees, which in this case have just kind of all dried out because of a really dry spring, and that's kind of partly why uh, Fort McMurray is just lit up so I'm flying over this area and I'm flying over these enormous tailing ponds which are actually lakes and that's where they're dumping all of this residue from the refining process um, clay oil water chemicals it's just going in these giant man-made lakes and then these vast fields of blackness called a uh, pet coke that's a uh, comes from the refinery process, and that can be burned as a secondary um, fossil fuel. And then these eerie yellow sulfur pyramids, they don't know what to do with the sulfur that comes from this uh, a refining process, so they're just building these yellow pyramids into the sky. And I'm flying above there, and pretty much from one edge of the Earth to the next is just this enormous mud pit. It, it looks just like this, just this, this, this apocalyptic moonscape, and I, I say to the pilot, uh, wow, that's huge. This is amazing. And he says, we only, we're only seeing 10% of the pit mining operation up there. So this is an enormous um, project. This may be the worst man-made environmental disaster in world history.
1: You mean the fire or just the whole... Just the whole whole project, project?
2: yeah. So, yeah, the fire, uh, for a variety of reasons, has pretty much taken over the town. And as you said, the... Yeah, the the entire town
1: has been evacuated. You know, I just wonder, like, I'm amazed. I suppose it was they had the very conservative government in Canada up until just recently... Um, And perhaps that's why they went so hog wild with this tar sands thing, right?
2: That's right, yeah. Um, So they've kind of always known that the tar sands were there. Even the Native Americans way back then would use it for a variety of purposes. But it wasn't until about the 1950s that they started working on um extracting this bitumen and turning it into oil Uh and that didn't really take off until the 70s and didn't really really take off until very recently with the stephen harper government um who was you know just kind of oil sands obsessed um
1: yeah evidently yeah boy they're going to be thanking him for that aren't they (laughs) Uh uh-huh uh-huh i hope that guy goes to jail for that shit um You know, one of the things that really cracked me up, by the way, was what you described as the food, being a food person. I have to ask you about your diet on this journey, because what you described was to me like I couldn't believe that you showed up here with all your teeth.
2: You're rightfully appalled. And
1: your face, you know, like your entire body, just one giant pimple. I mean, tell us what you packed. Was really amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm
2: gonna distress some of your. You your basically. Uh. You,
1: I mean, if I could have bought, Mar, you know, stock in Mars, I would have. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like heavy duty candy bar reliance there.
2: Uh, basically, I went to Sam's Club and bought about a thousand dollars worth of food because I was going to box it all up and then have a friend in Denver mail it to post offices along my route. This is how thru hikers doing those big mega trails um, organize their trips. Uh-huh. So yeah, I bought a whole bunch of energy bars, which have some nutritional um, quality to them a lot of candy bars i was eating like three candy bars (laughs) a day and then other things like i had a lot of granola and powdered whole milk. that's what i'd have every morning and then at night i'd usually have some like ramen with some really old parmesan cheese which is strangely never goes bad and i'd carry little That's canisters it's not really cheese <laughs> i don't know what it is <laughs> but it didn't go bad and uh, uh and a couple of canisters of olive oil and stuff like that and it's funny like when I'd get to a town, and I'm I'm mostly a vegetarian, and I really care about my nutrition. But when I'd get to a town on this walk, I had not really eaten any fruits or vegetables for a long period of time. Yeah. But all I wanted was like a milkshake and a hamburger. Like that's just what I was craving for some reason. But but go ahead and scold me if you. If oh, you I'm not
1: scolding. I'm just fascinated that you didn't actually get sick from eating all that sugar. And, you know, and not being able to balance it out with, like, fiber and, you know, like, some of the other key nutrients. I mean, I understand that protein bars or energy bars have a bit of protein in them. They might have a bit of fiber, but not really on a day, like, on a week-to-week basis. Like, you were – it was hard to tell from the book, actually, how many days you'd be out on the open road um, and how often you'd be stopping into a town to, like, get water or – that was, like, your biggest concern, it seemed like, was, like, being able to keep your water bottles full.
2: Yeah, that's kind of when I had to start, like, knocking on doors to ask for, for folks for water. But generally, I wouldn't go into a town for five or six days. That's when I'd pick up another supply. So mm-hmm. I was kind of just out there on the wide-open grassland prairie. I know, and it was so—the description is
1: so breathtakingly beautiful. I was just like, oh, I want to do that. Um so what were the, some of the biggest regional differences? I was really fascinated by the way, you know, populations changed, not necessarily the demographic, the economic demographic, because that seemed pretty consistent throughout, mm-hmm. um, but just sort of the attitude towards walkers and hikers and the attitudes towards just kind of strangers in general. And then, you know, talk a little bit about how people responded to your mission,
2: Gotcha. Well, yeah, well, first of all, these are mainly farmers and ranchers. This is an agricultural region of this country, and it's about 99% white as well. Um, I went from pretty much Alberta all the way down to Kansas without seeing, you know, a Native American or an African American or a Hispanic person or anything like that. Um, So, and it's very spread out. I mean, the plains are, um, are not a populous region of this country. Um, There's very few people out there. But yeah, so walking through that, like no one had ever seen a walker or a hitchhiker. It's not like you're walking like near the path of the Appalachian Trail where folks are just really accustomed to to seeing hikers. This was the first time in their lives that they'd seen someone doing what I was doing. So when I interacted with them, there was always um, kind of instantaneous suspicion (laughs) and paranoia. Um, But generally, that kind of went away every time after about five minutes of discussion. And from there, I got nothing but kindness and generosity. I remember this one time, uh, well, several times I was walking roads in Kansas and Oklahoma And I see a truck go past me and then come back about 15 minutes later holding out a bag of McDonald's. You know, I'm a complete stranger. They don't know who I am. Yeah, they'd they'd go out and do that. Yeah,
1: you had a lot of great experiences of, of, you know, getting the kindness from strangers. I mean, that was one of the, the themes in the book that comes up over and over again. It sort of made me feel a lot better about Americans in general, but also just... Um, you know, just humankind that we haven't completely lost our shit. That's you know?
2: right. Yeah, like it, it's you know, I came into this project a cynic, um, mm-hmm. and when you're getting nothing but generosity and kindness from complete strangers every single day, it, it makes that cynicism go away. I mean, granted, the cynicism came back, um, but <laughs> but when you're out there, uh, yeah. You know, you feel proud of being American. Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, I, I thought it was really beautiful. And I think the cynicism comes back because we're living in an urban area where people don't always have as many opportunities to display it. Although I'm a firm believer in um, touting the virtues of New Yorkers as unbelievably kind and generous people. Because that's always been my experience here. I've lived here for forty something years, and it's—I think it's just the greatest city in the world. Um, but anyway, um, talk to us a little bit about. Um, so you were saying, what, what did people think of your mission? Like, I know you were sort of reticent in the beginning about revealing why exactly you were doing this, and you would kind of like hold back so as not to like ruffle feathers and get you know get into people's faces about it. But what what in general were people's feelings about the idea of the Keystone Pipeline? Did they under pipeline? Did they understand the implications of what it was going to mean? Or did they were they only able to see it as like, oh, it's jobs, 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 which, of course, is what the company tells them.
2: Yeah. Well, well first of all, I had to go into this project with um, kind of, uh, I wanted to go into it with an open mind because I'd never been on the Great Plains. I'd never talked to the landowners. I'd never, I never—I didn't know what their concerns were. I didn't know anything about pipelines or anything like that. So I wanted to just kind of open my mind and learn as much as I could. So, yeah, I tried to kind of hold in my um, environmental beliefs as much as I could just to get them to open up about their lives. Right. And gen- I mean, it, it varied per region. Um their opinions. Like, for instance, up in Alberta and Saskatchewan, these Canadian provinces, the folks up there are very used to pipelines. There's pipelines all over the place. Um, the oil industry plays a huge part in those provincial economies. So it's just kind of, you know, more the same. When I crossed the border into the U.S., into Montana, I began to see a few folks opposed to it on grounds of private property um, and stuff like that. And Nebraska, a huge chunk of Nebraska was very opposed to the pipe, and that's because the pipe was set to go through the Ogallala Aquifer, where they get their drinking water and irrigate their crops. But, right. but overall, I would say that most folks were indifferent about the pipe. I'd say they uh, I saw a lot of um, climate change denialism, um, and there was really no happy ending to that. Mm-hmm. part of the story.
1: yeah. Why do you think that, I mean, because the fact is, as you point out in the beginning of the book, we have literally hundreds of thousands of pipeline already exist in the United States. So, not only was Keystone kind of redundant, but, um, but, uh, or at least in places, but, but, um, but why did people pick on the Keystone XL as, like, suddenly we're all supposed to be upset about pipelines when we already have it's kind of like being worried about whether or not there's GMO in your food. It's there, people. I mean... You know, and it's been there for a while. So why do you think that was such a phenomenon?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I should state up at first that we have 1.7 million miles of oil and gas pipelines just in the U.S. Yeah. We've been building um, oil pipelines since the 1860s. The first was a wooden gutter, actually, in West Virginia. Um, So pipelines for the past 150 years have been completely normal, completely non-controversial. So that's what makes the Keystone XL just so unusual, so extraordinary. And I think it's a couple of reasons. One, we're just kind of as a country, as a society, becoming more concerned about climate change where, um, you know, we want to promote renewable energy infrastructure. And, you know, here it is, 2010, and we're talking about this giant pipeline. Being slung across the middle of America And it's just like, come on like We're done with this, we need to be done with this So I think it was just kind of Time for that, and there was a lot of Just very strong leadership from Environmental groups, like 350.org Bill McKibben, Sierra Mm -hmm. Club They kind of made this Um a focal point of the movement to kind of coalesce the whole environmental movement and focus on defeating something, because it was a reachable goal. Like, like what if you said you want to um, end the coal industry? That's a legislatively difficult process. Right. But getting rid of the Keystone XL, all you would have to do is convince one man, and that would be President Obama. So this was an opportunity to, to win a victory. Right, right. And did his vetoing of the pipeline change your opinion of him? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the past uh, year or so of his administration has changed my opinion of him. I think yeah. he's um, done as much as he really could, given the limits of, you know, having to work with an obstructionist Congress and having limits um, in place from the Supreme Court. And I think he's done a lot of really wonderful things environmentally. Yeah, I just wish he wasn't pushing those trade platforms. But
1: that's another story for another <laughs> show, isn't it? <laughs> Talk a little bit about um, about what you saw when you were because I loved the passages where you were describing like walking across these beautiful sort of long, long, undulating, you know, prairies. I mean, and and, you know, and what was on them, and what that was like to be just like completely isolated. I mean, you were out there with nobody and nothing.
2: I was out there alone with coyotes. I was out there with coyotes. Um, So, well, well. when we picture the great plains we usually picture that one time we drove across kansas on the i-70 and it was nothing but flat windy boring but when you walk 1700 miles across the great plains you come away with a very different impression this is one of the most beautiful underappreciated landscapes not only in north america but the world it is just Absolutely stunning when you're kind of standing on top of a um, a grassland hillcrest and you just see nothing but undulating waves of grasslands as far as the eye can see. You are out there alone. You are like this solitary skiff on this ocean of grass. And I remember... Um, you know, I I'd have coyotes outside of my tent at night and I'd listen to their chatter and I'd watch these huge herds of deer, sometimes like fifty of them, and pronghorn just storming across the prairie and wow. elegantly leaping over barbed wire fences. This one time uh five thousand ducks ascended from a hayfield and swirled in the sky like a tornado about to touch down. Um and you, you just can't help but fall in love with this, yeah. this simple landscape. It sounds
1: incredible. Now, I have to ask you, what has a cow ever done to you? Because, I mean, you're, that was really, like, obviously a big thing for you was the cows. And, I mean, of all the critters that you're going to encounter out in the wild, the cow would not be my number one predator.
2: I'd, I'd like to go on the record and uh, <laughs> legitimize this fear because I get laughed at you a lot bet. for it. Um <laughs> Did you have a close
1: encounter with an angry cow?
2: I, several an- angry cows, yes. Um, and, you know, to walk across America is to walk past thousands and thousands of cows. Yeah. Um, and I did a little research, and um, believe it or not, but 14 Americans die every single year because of uh, cow-related fatalities. And it's, it's interesting. They have, like, um, demographical statistics on who they target. And it's, like, men, I think, 91% of the time, and uh, whites, 77% of the time, which just put a target on my pasty white man butt. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, so, like, I have to um, hop barbed wire fences 50 times a day and walk yeah. right in the midst of a cow herd. And she's like, what happens if one of them is having a bad day? And when I say cows, I'm talking about bulls as well. Um, So, uh, yeah, as I'm walking through Alberta and Saskatchewan and Montana, this phobia kind of goes away because I just notice they all run away when I come towards them. But there was this one instance in South Dakota where I'm hop a barbed wire fence and I approach a herd of black Angus cows and they're not running away. Rather, they form this kind of this narrow corridor, which I have to walk through. Mm -hmm. So I'm just surrounded by cows and I'm walking down this gentle hill into this um, creek bed and they all come storming at me from behind and I took off on the fastest. Run of my life.
1: <laughs> yes, shedding backpack clothing.
2: <laughs>
0: That's right. Trekking poles. That's right.
1: <laughs> I actually loved that story and that it was so great. I, you know, I've never had cows chase me. I uh, grew up in a very
2: rural area, so this is sort of news to me, but,
1: you know, something scared them.
2: Well, yeah, and it wasn't you. I I I moved to Nebraska after I wrote this, and I lived right next to a cattle feedlot, and I would help the rancher sort cattle. So, um, you know, I kind of worked on my phobia that way. And they all laugh at me when I tell them that story because they're just like they were hungry, they were just curious. Um, But you know, when they were running at me, I thought my life was on the line. I thought my life was over with.
1: Yeah, no, I I can understand that feeling. I mean, definitely, I wouldn't want to see a a herd of. 1200-pound beasts hurtling down a hill towards me. I I fully support your decision to run like a rabbit. (laughs) I would have done the same, except I can't run anymore. I don't know why. But anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about the financial incentives and the um, you know... uh, When people get pipeline laid across their their property, they are typically compensated in some way by the energy company, right? That's right. Yes. And so, is that how the energy companies sell the idea? Like, of course, you want the pipeline. It's going to bring jobs. It's going to pay you some money. It's going to, you know, are they able? Do they offer any guarantees of the safety of their pipeline equipment? Um, You described one scenario in which they were going to use a lesser quality pipe. That's right. I was thinking to myself, well, so what if a cow puts his foot through that? I mean. You know, like, who pays? Like, how does that work It's a
2: bad deal for a lot of folks. And talking with a lot of the American landowners, they felt like they were being bullied by Mm -hmm. these uh, um, land agents for the pipeline company. They'd come in, very nice, very charismatic people, and say, hey, if you don't take this deal, um, we're going to come and um, claim your land. um, By eminent domain? By eminent Mm -hmm. domain, um, and um, they all—they're all—all these landowners are forced to sign uh, non, non-disclosure contracts, so no one knows what their neighbor is making. No one knows what the um, folks in Texas are making. So it just puts you at a disadvantage to negotiate. And yeah, up in Montana and South Dakota, they were using a, a low-consequence. Um, this was considered low-consequence land, so they were using a thinner pipe. And we just saw in South Dakota a couple of weeks ago a big spill. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it it, it so. A state is convinced to, to bring a pipeline for a couple reasons. The landowners are compensated, sometimes generously, um, and it brings state revenue in each year. But that often doesn't kind of – the pipeline company doesn't really often fulfill their promise. For instance, they were um, projecting $6.5 million per year for South Dakota past three years South Dakota only got an average of 3.4 million for having the Keystone one pipeline in their mm-hmm. land in Nebraska the pipe is considered a piece of equipment that after 15 years has no more taxable value so if the pipe is pumping for 50 years it doesn't matter They're, they stop bringing in taxes after 15 wow. Kansas very weirdly gave the pipeline company a 10-year tax exemption which means they make no money so these states are not really uh, getting much at all. And as you said, um, in the contract, it's just very vague language about what happens if there's a spill, how much you're compensated, how much they do to um, uh, repair the land. Mitigate environmental
1: yeah. things. Well, I loved the story about Kansas because Sam Brownback is one of my favorite politicians to jab at. And, um, you know, and since he's brought the state to absolute ruin financially through his idiotic You know, adherence to trickle down economics. And then here he is, he gives a big frickin' tax break to an energy company and deprives his citizens even further of the revenue they need to run their schools and police departments, fire departments, all the stuff that he's effectively, you know, eviscerated by not, by lowering taxes on the wealthy.
2: Yeah, and th- and they always talk about like the, the patriotic BS, too, about how this is going to be great for America, how this is going to be great for jobs, but that's not the case at all. TransCanada said there's going to be 20,000 jobs for installing the Keystone XL. That's not true at all. Right. Um, the State Department projected that there'd be about... 35 to 50 permanent jobs once this pipeline is is in the ground. And I walked several hundred miles of pre-existing pipeline up in Canada and Kansas, and guess how many workers I saw in all those hundreds of miles. Right. I did not see one. Wow! Yeah. These, these right. pipelines do not create good jobs. No, of
1: course not. I mean, once they're in the ground, they're in the ground. What's left to do? That's right. They're just, pip- they're just pu- pumping the stuff through it. I mean, when the fracking thing was happening in New York, before the governor vetoed fracking altogether, um, I was one of my first programs here, and I, I had on a guy from the oil and gas industry of New York, you know, like the, the sort of lobbying group for them, and then somebody from a group called Catskill Mountain Keepers. And the guy from the oil and gas company... I just couldn't control him as a guest. I mean, it was embarrassing, but I, I mean, he was so, um, you know, he was so rehearsed and so slick and so completely fake. And even when he was, when things like, I do know a little bit about fracking and natural gas and how long a natural gas well lasts. And he was saying it would be like 25, 30 years. And I was like, no actually. It's about five is the natural lifespan of a natural gas well. So you're selling a whole population on a bill of goods for something that doesn't exist. Thank God for Cuomo and, he, and vetoing that. But anyway, they're very scary, these pipeline people. And what amazes me also is like, did you find that even in your environmental groups were there people who were like disseminating the information about the fact that these non-disclosure agreements were in place and that people had a right to know what other people were being paid? I mean, is there any? Edu- were you aware of any education process to landowners to help them sort of counter some of these arguments that
2: are, you know, at least specious, if not downright fake. Uh, Generally, there wasn't. um, And one of the landowners was uh, he was telling me that, you know, he didn't even have any lawyers to go through because the local lawyers were bought out by the pipeline company. So he just had no sort of legal recourse to anything. And again, Um, You know, this is a a very um, low-population, dense area, so there's not even that many folks who you can really talk to about that. There was one rather grand exception, and that was in Nebraska. This wonderful um, organization called Bold Nebraska formed to oppose this pipeline, and they were a very powerful force. And I think if you could point to any one um, environmental group, maybe aside from 350.org— for the re- uh, rejection of the Keystone XL, it would be bold Nebraska. It was very surprising to see Nebraska cutting, leading the charge on this environmental issue.
1: Yeah, sure, because they're certainly a very conservative state. Um, when did you decide that you would become um, – oh, no, I loved the po- – okay, here's – before we get to that question. When people described you or asked you if you were one of them environmentalist types, <laughs> what was your response?
2: Oh, uh, it was it was tough. Like at first it's just kind of like shock like when yeah. you get asked that cuz you know I am an environmentalist, but I don't think of that as some extremist ideology. I mean, I just think of it as It's not a perversion. We don't Yeah. yeah. I, I, I want like, you know, clean air and clean water and clean soil and and stuff like that. So when they ask the question, it's almost um it's suggestive that they're not in favor of those basic things as well. So it was just kind of like this shock and feeling taken aback. Um, But I would say that I, I I got through to them when I explain why I'm an environmentalist, and uh, you know, I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, just about four miles away from the ghost town of Love Canal, where right. you know one of the worst environmental tragedies in U.S. history, chemical company buried a whole bunch of chemical waste. Community several decades later was experiencing abnormally high cancer rates, miscarriages, children were being born with second rows of teeth. So when I explained that, when I explained why I'm suspicious of industry having no regulation whatsoever they got it um and while i'm kind of disappointed i never really had a great conversation about climate change in which i kind of convinced someone about it i am happy at least i showed them that you're you're not some nutcase for caring about the environment
1: right right why do you think people are so uh invested in denying climate change in sort of the heartland why do you think that is
2: Oh, for a couple reasons, and that's a, that's a really good question. Um, for one, like I think everyone in the Plain states have um, know that, have a sense of mortality for their town because there's so many boom towns turned ghost towns. They know right. that economic situations can just kind of boot them out of their um, town or home. So when a family is worrying about paying the bills, when a family is struggling. Um, when a family has something to worry about today, they're not going to think to w- worry about something that might affect them in 20 years, or 50 years, or 100 years. So, a lot of people don't care about the environment simply because they can't afford to. Oftentimes, they need to take a job in a uh, intensive fossil fuel, um, you know, oil industry or the agricultural industry, things like that. And the Great Plains, as a whole, they that's a region. Heavily dependent on fossil fuels, far more than any other part of the country. To get anywhere, you have to drive long distances. This right. is an agricultural reason uh, region, so you're consuming tons of fossil fuels when you turn on your tractor mm-hmm. and um, when you cut down your hay field and and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no, yeah, no one wants to feel guilt when you're turning the ignition on your tractor. Right, so it's just right. better to deny it.
1: But it's so interesting to me because, I mean, because it is the Great Plains, I mean, you do have the opportunities of wind and solar to help you at least with some of the grid costs. I mean, maybe not running your tractor. They haven't built a battery-operated tractor yet. But I'm here with my battery-operated chainsaw. I feel very environmentally friendly with that. <laughs> Yeah, and I I think I mean you know, I just feel like if there was like some sort of educational process going on that wasn't being controlled by fossil fuel companies as it clearly is, as well as media Um, You know, there might be more openness toward it, especially if it was kind of free, like sun and wind.
2: Yeah. I remember one kind of forward thinking Methodist pastor told me down in Texas, um, folks around there just have a hard time believing in something that they have yet to experience. Mm. And a lot of the folks on the Great Plains, you know, these aren't like drowning villages um, in the uh, equatorial um, Pacific, you know. They, they've they probably noticed that it's getting warmer, but they're not suffering the way other people are suffering. So it's just, I think it's going to just take, um, you know, got to raise the, the, the thermostat and the, a yeah. little bit more. Well,
1: so they're not experiencing drought like other parts of the country.
2: I mean, they have plenty of droughts, uh, but that's just, that's been historic. I mean, uh-huh. the Great Plains are a very sure. arid place, and that's what caused the 1930s dust bowl. The dust bowl, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Fascinating. Um, do you
1: do you feel like? Um, let me ask you this. Okay, here's here's your. This is actually your final question. Then you get to promote your events and stuff. But if we were electing you as president, Ken, what would your energy platform be? Oh, this is my, and, my fantasy. And what what environmental measures would you try to pass?
2: Oh boy, um, sky's the limit. <laughs> oh, I, I think some. Market solutions might help. One of the things uh, that make a lot of sense to me um, is the carbon tax, you know, Uh where you just have to pay more money when you're um, buying or using a fossil fuel. Same thing with the fee and dividend system, which makes us it would take me a while to describe that. But just look up fee and dividend for an idea for a market solution to environmental problems. Um, And uh, there's this guy named uh, David Owen, a writer who wrote The Conundrum, which I really liked. And he says, you know, we need need to invest Mm -hmm. a lot of money into big techno wonders, stuff we haven't even imagined. And I don't think um, techno wonders is going to solve the solution. We really need to lower consumption. I mean, like, like... North Americans, Canadians and Americans, we consume twice the amount of energy that Europe does. We emit twice the amount of greenhouse gases that Europe does. Yet our standard of living is, um, you know, very much the same. We need to just have a a radical revolution in um, how much we consume.
1: Um, Well, I'm I'm perplexed a little bit by that. Uh, The Europeans use a lot of nuclear energy as opposed to po- fossil fuels, right? So how have they managed to lower their their overall consumption of energy? They drive. They, they, drive. Have, better, they have better public transportation than we do, that's for sure.
2: You can, you can look to California as an example uh, of a state that has kind of maintained or reduced the amount of energy they use per capita, and that's entirely because of laws. They've passed mm-hmm. laws that have... Um, Made it more expensive, um, created incentives for um, better energy solutions, and that's what you see in a lot of places in Europe. So it's—I don't think it's just nuclear energy. I think it's—I um, think it's just democracy in action.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, so now we get to promote your book and your events. So tell us where you're going to be.
2: Yeah. So and
1: remember uh, that this is a national. I mean, this this goes everywhere because it's a podcast. So. other states are fine but you're going to be you're appearing in new york city right
2: yeah yeah this is kind of the uh the the last leg of my tour but i'm in new york city tonight at seven o'clock at the half king uh oh what fun i love the half king oh wonder yeah i haven't been there um and if anyone wants to follow me just uh, go to my website kenilgunis.com or follow me on facebook or instagram do you have a twitter handle I do, but I really use it. Oh, okay, I think, I think it's Algunas as well. Okay,
1: so. and that's I L G U N A S, folks. For those of you who um, didn't uh, are are natural spellers, as I am. I'm naturally I spell everything in my head. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for joining me today, Ken. This was really fun. I don't do a lot of stuff about uh, environment. I mean, I do, but usually in the more in the context of agriculture than my our chat today. But I again congratulate you on a really wonderful book. I just loved it. I, I devoured it fast and. Um, you know, it gave me a lot of things to think about, so I appreciate it. And also, I'm going on a walking tour myself very soon. Oh, nice! Yeah, I've never done that before, so I'm looking forward to it. And you were really inspiring in that one. So, thanks to my uh, sponsor, and um, thanks as always to my engineer, Jack Insley. We'll see you next week. The wonderful Tom Philpot from Mother Jones will be joining me to talk about politics. See you then. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.